Hello and welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite podcast brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Today it gives me the great pleasure to introduce Dr Christina Bradstreet to the show. Christina would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and your works? Okay oh well thank you Carl thanks for inviting me onto the Pre-Raphaelite podcast. How many episodes do you have now? Oh, the two have just gone out this morning, so I think we are up to seven, and there's a, a big back catalogue waiting to come out. Well, I feel very honoured to be part of this so early on in the series. Um, yeah, so thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, so I'm Christina. Um, I work at the National Gallery in the Learning Department, where I organise um, courses and events for adults. Um, I consider myself an art historian specialising in Victorian painting, really. Um, but the, obviously at the National Gallery, I'm um, working on paintings from the Renaissance right through to the sort of end of the collection in the early 20th century. Um, so I um, teach, organise courses. And then um, aside of that, outside of the gallery, I've spent um, the last <laughs> 20 years or so um, writing uh, my book which has just come out um, with Pennsylvania Pennsylvania State University Press um, Scented Visions Smelling Art 1850 to 1914 so as I say this book has taken me about 20 years to write I think it's taken me as long as Darwin took to write Origin of the Species <laughs> and it's obviously just as important um, as it comes out of my PhD research, which I did at the Courtauld with, um, sorry, no, I didn't do it at the Courtauld, I <laughs> did my PhD at Birkbeck College, I did my master's at the Courtauld with Caroline Oscott and my PhD at Birkbeck with Linda Mead, um, and then um, after sort of working for a bit at teaching A-level art history, I got a, a scholarship from the Paul Mellon Centre to work, start work on turning it into a book. <laughs> um, and uh, completely failed to do that during the time of the fellowship, um, but then really got stuck into it sort of actually while I was working um, at Sotheby's Institute and then at the National Gallery, sort of somehow found that working on it in my own time got, got the job done eventually. I have to say it's, it is an absolutely wonderful book. I've read it and every single page is just fascinating. I'm, I'm really impressed. It's, it's a wonderful way of looking at art but a really unusual way of looking at art where did you get the inspiration from well it kind of all started during my undergraduate dissertation um i did my ba at leicester and i did my dissertation on the language of health and disease and the critical response of to dante gabriel rossetti <laughs> so i was looking for quotes of critics saying how sort of sensual and um diseased sickly as paintings were and looking at the sort of language of pathology and um, during that research I found um, several quotes by critics um, describing his poetry as um, emanating this kind of sickly sweet miasmic perfume of hyacinth for example or musky scents that would um, sort of emanate out of the painting and um, you got the sort of sense of, of the critics kind of fearing that the, the male viewer would be emasculated by this um, sickly sweet per cloying perfume. Um, so I just got fascinated by metaphors of smell from that. And meanwhile, I found, also found some um, references to Millet's paintings being much more sort of 
um, Scottish fresh air and heather <laughs> and sort of manly moorland smells. Um, so that, that just really kind of interested me. Um, and then I took the subject up a bit during my master's, um, but I kind of feel like I sort of stretched the material a little bit too far into the kind of imaginative realms, but then came back to it for my PhD. And um, I, during my, I, actually I had a year between my BA and my master's, we're going back a long time now, <laughs> um, to about 2000. And I had a job at the cabinet office. Um, organizing events there and I used to sort of wander off during my lunch breaks for long walks and I remember going to the book fair underneath the bridge um, on the south bank and I found this book which I'd never come across before um, which was Alan Corban's The Fowl and the Fragrant um, which is a social history of smell in 18th century France it's sort of the iconic smell history book and I just sort of saw it and knew I had to have it that it was going to be so important for me in some way I suppose because I had had just done the undergraduate dissertation with those um, smell metaphor passages in it but I didn't have any money on it <laughs> money on me um, so being quite sort of shy and about 20 I I hid it um, in one of the book boxes and thought I'd come back for it the next day <laughs> <laughs> um but unfortunately in doing so I'd messed up the booksellers system so I think I had to go back about four or five times before I actually found the book <laughs> again and that book really has become sort of the, the sort of a, a key book um a key study for the book it's the book that Patrick Suskin's 1980s novel and Perfume um, also kind of stems from because it looks at the the story of a murderer um, because Corbin writes about the smells of the tanneries, the stench of the um, factories and industries in France, but also the perfumes and grass. So I sort of used that as my kind of social history background, but then brought it more into the 19th century because Corbin finishes in about 1850 and I start, you know, in around 1850 my book and, and go to 1914. See, it, it's interesting that there aren't many core texts that deal with scent and the history of scent. Um, is, is scent maybe seen as quite a low value sense in, in, in terms of how we might privilege sight and sound as opposed to smelling? Yeah, so actually when I first started this research, there really weren't a lot of um, books looking at um, the history of smell and certainly nothing in, in kind of art history, really. But that's changed a lot over the period that I've been working on this. So um, there's uh, David Howells, an anthropologist, and Constant Classen have been pioneers. Um, but also um, Mark M. Smith in America, he's the person who... Uh, commissioned my book in the end um, for pen so that has really really changed and I think it's actually now a really flourishing subject but yes absolutely traditionally smell has been low in the hierarchy of the senses uh, I guess starting from the 18th century with philosophers like Kant um, who actually, or, or even going back further to ancient Greece and um, Aristotle um, smell has been sort of seen as the lowly slowly sense um, associated with sex and death and dirt and disease and animals 
And so in the 19th century, you have um, Freud, for example, uh, writing about this. Um, earlier into, well, into the 20th century, critics like Clement Greenberg as well, sort of repressing the sense of smell. So I think that really, and given that art history is a really a 20th century discipline, those kind of ideas coming through from Freud and, and Clement Greenberg have been really important in suppressing um, the history of smell in art history as a subject and, and, and prioritizing sight as being the intellectual sense you know the idea that man when he stood up from all fours left the doggy terrain behind and surveyed the world um, and looked around him and, and was um, analyzing what he saw so yes that has been really important does it is there something synesthetic about it so i know Quite often in pre-Raphaelite studies, we talk about synesthesia as the link between sort of sound and colour or colour and our sense of what's beautiful. And there's often a moral aspect to it with people like John Ruskin in the ways you could see. I'm just thinking about how, how the idea of scent plays into sort of wider debates around synesthesia in the Victorian period. Yes, so the word synesthesia um, wouldn't have been um, one that the pre-Raphaelites were using, but certainly um, we know from you know Rossetti's poetry and Swinburne's poetry that they were very interested in that kind of phenomena of of um, one sense playing to another, experiencing one sense through another, and they were um, reading French literature, French poetry as well, um, with those kind of qualities. But then I think there's, you can also think about it, this from a kind of a physiological and scientific perspective, of, um, the kind of ideas of synesthesia. So um, in early uh, um, psychology texts and, and studies, research being done into um, sort of synesthesia experience uh, in terms of mental health, issues um hallucinations um so there's quite a lot in my book about that um but also um not just um synesthesia sort of something pathologized but relating to um physiology as well so um i look at alexander bain's texts um in particular and, and george henry lewis as well um so physiologists here talk about the idea that when we look at a picture of flowers, for example, we remember times that we've looked at real flowers and experienced flowers. So all of um, all of the sensations of looking at those flowers will come flooding back to us, and they'll run along the same neural pathways as when we actually looked at the flowers. So that when you look at a painting of flowers, you're having the same kind of experience, then and therefore you will, in some some ways, smell the flowers and that it's almost the same experience. Um, and I think that idea was really key. I suppose the question is, um, when we think about Victorian aesthetic painting, and we talk a lot um, in quite glib terms about how um, aesthetic painting was sensual, <laughs> but in the 19th century, was it perhaps actually being experienced in a much more sort of multi-sensory way or, or considered in a more multi-sensory way that looking at these paintings would actually revive 
all of the sensations depicted. Did the Victorians have a different sense of scent, a different sense of smell? Are we missing something perhaps in the modern world that the Victorians had or um, could could read into paintings and pictures that perhaps we, we just don't do anymore? I mean, I mean, obviously the um, operations of the nose, the mechanics of the nose um, were the same. I don't suppose we, um, that we've regressed so far in terms of the acute, cuteness of our sense of smell, but the ways in which um, the Victorians would have thought about smell were certainly different. So there are lots of ideas that the Victorians held about smell that we don't hold, hold today. And that's actually a really kind of key aspect of my book because we can use those ideas to help us interpret paintings in sometimes quite surprising ways. So for example, we don't think of um, smell as disease. Mm, yeah. you know, um, um, Edwin Chadwick, the public health reformer said that all smell is disease. So not just bad stenches, but perfumes as well. All smell is disease. And um, you know, we know from our own times how terrifying an invisible virus <laughs> lurking in the atmosphere can be, or lurking um, on objects can be. So if you think um, back to 1858, for example, when um, Spencer Stanhope um, started working on thoughts of the past, to think about how the idea of the smell from the river, from the River Thames, um, would have been actually really terrifying for people in the wake of cholera epidemics there was a fear that there would be a great um, cholera epidemic that year when the stench from the river was so bad that 1858 was the year of the great stench there are um, that's just one example there are lots of ways in which we um, the Victorians would have thought about smell quite differently to us I mean um, another is the idea of perfumes as being um, potentially lethal <laughs> um, of, of, of flowers emanating um, intoxicating and deadly perfumes that might suffocate you in your sleep. So there are all sorts of kind of fake news stories that I found of um, beauty and carriage coming back from the ball with um, garlands of flowers in her hair found um, dead in the back of the carriage from suffocating. And, and there are images that reflect that as well, um, sort of sleeping beauty type imagery. Yeah, uh, I suppose that links back to your first thoughts on this with Rossetti and quite often with, say, Rossetti's paintings, we might think of the luscious colours and the beautiful women. But since reading your book, I've thought about these pictures so very differently. And there is a, a fragrant element to that. And this idea of it being intoxicating and it sucking you in, it plays with this idea of the the rich and the luxurious, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um so Rossetti, in his earlier works, like found he's he's um, really I think responding to the the great stench and the idea of of atmospheric and moral pollution and and bringing those two together in in the image of the prostitute. But as those works were created at the time of, of miasma theory, the idea that um, miasma um, bad smells, bad air lurks in the atmosphere and um, corrupts, um, causes contagion. Um, but then his career spans into the area of germ theory. So germ theory sort of comes in in the 1860s and 1870s when he's 
making his stunner paintings right through to through to his death. So it's sort of interesting to see how he responds to smell in slightly different ways as those ideas take hold in the public imagination. Um, so it's not that he responds directly to germ theory in his work, but I think as the as germ theory takes hold in the public imagination, the fear of miasma abates somewhat. So um, artists become a bit more playful with smell and are able to kind of respond to it in different ways. So I think going back to the sort of the early pre-Raphaelite days, we might think about how the Royal Academy was teaching um, that you, you need to paint ideal beauty. And of course, stench is not ideal beauty. It's the exact opposite of that. So the pre-Raphaelites in suggesting stench in some of their works were, you know, being controversial in the way that they were in painting subjects like prostitution and immigration and, and um, those kind of more controversial subjects that they tackled. But then in his 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 um, later sort of um, works of, of beautiful hothouse women in enclosed interiors, he's still responding to those ideas of of miasma, I think, but in a more in a slightly more um, playful, imaginative way. Perhaps playful is not quite the right word, but in a more um, imaginative way. So the fear of of miasma has abated somewhat. But there's still this um, sense of it as something bewitching, beguiling, mysterious, dark and sinister. That lingers right on right through to the end of the end of the 19th century, really. Um, you see it in Bram Stoker's Dracula, for example, the kind of the stench of the lair. Yeah. So ideas about miasma linger on much longer than the miasma theory um, is still in sort of public understanding so when we first spoke about discussing this podcast I just had some initial thoughts before I read your book and I was thinking about how I've, I've seen it written quite a few times about how the pre-Raphaelites were so shocking because they were exposing a society that wasn't necessarily used to big rich colours and lusciousness it was exposing uh, particularly, say, the working classes, to such bright colour. Um, and I was thinking perhaps that might work in a sense with smell, because it's probably a big assumption on my part, but I'm assuming the Victorian period for most people smelt quite bad. <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought of it in quite those terms. Um but yes, of course, the Victorian period did smell um, in all sorts of ways that we, um, we do, which is not accustomed to today. So to walk along the Thames, I mean, Palmerston described it as a stygian pool of in, ineffable and intolerant, intolerable horrors, I think. And, uh, you know, there are lots of lots of quotes like that. Um, but you can think about all of the kind of industries that would have been along the Thames side. Um, there were 100,000 tonnes of sewage um, going into the Thames every day, 1,000 tonnes of horse manure being swept <laughs> on the city streets. Um, you can imagine it being sort of slid into the into the sewer gratings um, <laughs> below. So that is, is, is absolutely, I think, every time you 
um, look at a painting of, of a Victorian painting that's suggesting smell in some way, whether it's a good scent or, or a bad scent, you need to kind of keep that in mind, really. Hmm. And I was thinking perhaps I was, maybe I was thinking of this through a very sort of class-based sort of mode of thinking, if you like. I thought that might be, there might be something in the working class experience as opposed to the middle class experience where you could go out to these fancy balls and could purchase enormous bouquets of flowers to decorate your house. I know you touch on this a little bit in your book, the sort of class divide in sense. Could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I suppose what we know about um, Victorian ideas about smell really comes from the middle class writers and artists and thinkers. Um, so the sort of the middle class idea, I suppose, is that um, I mean, Rimmel, the Victorian perfumer, um, said it very well. Um, he said, um, noses have they, but they smell not. So the idea that the working classes um, were um, oblivious, the, the idea that the working classes were oblivious to um, the stenches around them, um, whilst the middle class man is is intolerant or intolerant or keep, keeps away from it, shuns bad smells. Um, so um, when we look at um, Victorian paintings, we tend to, uh, or, or imagery, we tend to see um, Victorian men as either oblivious to smells, that's in, um, I'm thinking of a, one of the depictions of the death of Albin, where you have Albin, um, who, who um, is a working class girl who's suffocated under a bed of, of flowers, which all the flowers that she's brought in from the, the garden to commit this kind of floral suicide. Um, but at her, at her bedside, there's um, either her, a doctor or her, or her father, someone sitting beside her, who's completely impervious to all of these smells that have, have killed her. I, I think within that, there's also the idea of sense being quite gendered. And I think that's possibly still with us today. You, you tend to have perfumes that are marketed towards women and um, aftershaves and colognes that are marketed towards men and and you I I think still have this sense of masculine and feminine fragrance was was that true for the Victorians as well? Yes so for a long time I only was really looking at imagery of women it seemed women smelling flowers I had to dig a lot deeper to find any kind of imagery of men smelling so male artists in, in the main are depicting um, women sort of lost in, in um, the scent of roses, perhaps even becoming turned on by the scent of roses. Um, but it's very unusual to see men smelling. Normally they're holding a handkerchief to their nose or shunning it. So where men are shown um, smelling, they tend to be either Oriental, <laughs> Eastern, I should say, or Eastern figures, Middle Eastern figures. So Western artists depicting Middle Eastern men as kind of lazy and lethargic, sitting around smoking their hookah pipes, um, or it's homoerotic imagery, um, um, not necessarily by a male artist. I'm thinking of Helen Fornicoff's um, Narcissus, for example, where you have um, the male youth laid back on the grass, but he seems to be kind of taking in all the scents of the meadow and then Narcissus next to him. Quite her, quite a homoerotic image, I would say. Or it's um, young children like Albine and the death of Albine imagery. It's basically everything other than 
the white middle class male <laughs> he's shown us smelling now you spoke earlier about the idea of scent and memory now there was a really beautiful quote that i found in your book that i, I just thought was a, a beautifully crafted sentence but i really evocative for me it was quite a powerful moment I had to reread it a few times you said that scent can tear off the veil between the between mm. heart and thought rendering us momentarily young again I thought that was a really powerful sentence I think that was directly in reference to Millet Autumn Leaves could you talk a little bit about that yeah, painting? I that was an 18th century um quote but I just thought it was really fitting for my chapter on smell and memory where I start off talking about Millet's autumn leaves um, which is a painting I really love and um, there's some there's a lovely uh, bit in um, Tennyson's wife's diary um, where she talks about um, Millet having been beguiled into sweeping up the autumn leaves um, when he visited them on and on the Isle of Wight um, and so I like to think that that might have been the moment of a year before he started painting um, Autumn Leaves, I think it was, that, that might have kind of started to inspire that painting. And when I look at that painting, I do think of it as a kind of memory image. It's so sort of evocative and nostalgic and haunting. So the kind of idea that smell can take you right back, tear off that veil and take you right back into memories of childhood. And so I see those girls as almost like, um, way figures way markers taking you back into your into your childhood memories and i thought about the the bonfire um in terms of imagery or metaphors um, that you've come across in literature um about organic matter um, and memory so the idea of of memories as being like leaf litter um, that they start off fresh and vivid and then um, decay and crumble and fade away. So when we look at the bonfire, you can see the bonfire in that painting, you can see the fresh, vivid leaves and then the more kind of crumbled ones and then the smoke um, coming out from, from the bonfire. You're right. It's a really evocative image. And I liked your idea of, of them being, the figures being way markers. I think they're almost ghosts from our past mm. in some ways just just mm. haunting us and and, and your, your play with sense of smell on this is is fantastic I feel like it's opened paintings up for me in some way it's <laughs> wonderful it's a sad painting as well isn't it because Millet had not too long before lost his friend Walter De Deverell Effie was pregnant um, so he may have been sort of thinking about life and mortality then as well um, particularly when you think of the mortality rate at babies at that time and um, there must have been more, much more sort of fear around pregnancies and um, as Kate Flint has, has argued so well as well um, I mean, it was the period of the Crimean War and the losses there where and, and the, um, he worked on the painting from his house in Perthshire so um, uh, the regiment in Perth was very important and, and suffered heavy losses in the Crimean War as well so I think all of that sort of grief links into ideas of memory as well to create such a haunting painting and sticking with Millet I think you, you've opened up one of my favorite paintings in, in a new way to me which is the blind girl um <laughs> so growing up in Birmingham it was 
common. I could go and see the blind girl at, at, at the art gallery there. And I, I, I'd never thought of it in terms of scent before. I, I imagined the the girl feeling her way through the world as as she's sort of just gently touching the blades of grass. But looking at it again with fresh eyes, it does appear like she's inhaling the world around her. Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favourite paintings, <laughs> really is. So the blind girl is, it's often said about the blind girl that it's a kind of multi-sensory painting because you can imagine the um, touch of the harebell that she's holding in her fingers, the blade of the stem of that flower, and the dampness of the earth beneath her. Um, but as you say, she seems to be kind of meditating um, on the meadow around her. So you can imagine her listening to the rooks cawing and the donkeys braying in the background, but also um, taking in the fresh sense of the meadow. So I think those kind of ideas are quite commonplace um, in, in the interpretation of the painting, but I've taken it a bit further. So um, one of the things that was really exciting, I, me I remember being in the British Library um, and finding a reference to the odour of the rainbow. <laughs> and I was so, so excited. I found a poem from a few years before The Blind Girl was, um, was painted um, by a poet called, um, I think it was John Snow. And the poet is, it, it writes about a blind girl sat by a wayside with, with her little sister. And she's saying to her sister, it doesn't matter that I can't see the rainbow because I can experience the Lord through all of my senses. It, to me, the poem is so, um, so similar or has so much in common with the painting that I, I really would love, to, I'd love to meet Millet and ask him had he read that poem. <laughs> or was it just the sort of kind of ideas that were in the zeitgeist of the grateful blind girl? Certainly that was a, a kind of trope of the 19th century. So while um, deaf children um, were sort of seen as not being um, open to, they, not having, um, being able to receive the, the words of the Lord, the blind girl is is um, channeling all the kind of the goodness of the world through her, her heightened senses. And then I also even thought about the town wall in the background of the painting on the skyline, the Winchelsea medieval town wall, because I found um, quite a few examples actually of the idea of the the brain as being a, a kind of fortified city. Um, with this, uh, with the gates of the city wall being the the senses, so um, everything that comes into the city or comes into our mind come in through those gates, through those cities. Um, so I kind of thought about the blind girl sitting in that painting with the medieval wall behind her as the kind of senses through which she is receiving um, her knowledge of the world around her and of, of the goodness of the Lord. That's a really wonderful metaphor. I like the idea of you know the, the skull being the the walls to the <laughs> center, and, and yeah, these these idea of gates and of, of passages into it. The idea, I have to say, the love, the idea of the odor of the rainbow as yeah. being kind of the scent of the fresh wet grass after the sun's come out. So the idea of petrichor, as we call it today. Um, and to, you know, to think that Victorians might have looked at that painting and, and thought about the smell of petrichor. Petrichor, is that the scent of the rain? Is the, is the kind of earth um, after a rainstorm, that kind of, that lovely smell that you get? Yeah. 
yeah <laughs> and and i can smell it now looking at the painting i i, I know exactly what you mean I, I feel like you've opened it a completely new way of reading paintings something else that we could talk about relating to that painting actually if you if you don't mind mm. um is about the fresh bright light colors of that yeah. painting and other early earlier pre-raphaelite paintings so i think it's interesting to think about them in terms of um sanitation work that was happening during that period that's something that eileen clear has has written about um so the idea that sanitation uh, operations were happening at the exact time take time that frame that the pre-Raphaelites were creating these really um, bright fresh colours and um, lolly lollipop colours at the same time um, as paintings were also being cleaned for example in the National Gallery all of those altar pieces that had been besmirched by um, candle flames, um, candle soots um, over centuries in churches or the old master paintings that had previously been hung in stately homes with gentlemen smoking their cigars in front of them. So all these works were being cleaned uh, in part because of the contemporary sanitation discourses that were happening around the city with Basil Jett's works, um, for example. So I think the Millet's the Blind Girl is a really good example of, of a work that's directly informed by the kind of sanitation um, operations in place at that time. That's really interesting because they are fresh colours, aren't they? They're those bright blues, the bright greens. and It, it comes back to this idea of the brightness and the luxury and the opulence of pre-Raphaelites and how, how perhaps that that is quite a new sensory experience for a lot of Victorians. I, yes, I, I, I can see how the hygiene element links to that. But then also when we look at the really intense colours of, um, say, Rossetti's Stunners, okay. um, and I think, I mean, that's not, um, I think, coming from the sanitation discourse, it's much more about that kind of sense of opulence and sensuality and the idea that one colour can spill over um, into the other senses that um, somehow um, so it, so the, those colours are so saturated that they spill out into the sense of smell. Dr Christina, your book is absolutely fascinating. I urge people to go and buy it. Christina, I think we're, we might have to leave it there. Could you just let us know if you've got any future plans for any works or anything you've got coming up? What, what are you doing at the moment? Well, thank you. Um, so one of the things that I did during lockdown for the National Gallery was create a series of eight um, art and mindfulness meditations, um, so meditations on paintings. And that's something that I'm trying to develop further um, sort of outside of my work for the National Gallery, so using iconic artworks from around the world. So I don't know, watch this space with that one. <laughs> and I also just wanted to mention um, there is a a code, a discount code that users can, um, listeners can use. So it's NR, NR22, NR22, and that gets you 30% off on the um, Pennsylvania University Press website if you when you go to the checkout basket with my book. I can pop that, am I okay to pop that code in the description below? Yes, absolutely, yeah. I'll send it to you afterwards, sorry. Oh, fantastic, that's great. So I 
Again, I'd urge everybody to come out and buy this book. And also, Dr. Christina, I was thinking about your um, mindfulness series. Perhaps a future podcast episode might be in order. Cool. What, what I would love to do is, is lead a meditation on a pre-Raphaelite painting. On you know, It could be the blind girl or something else. I'd love to do that. Oh, you can absolutely yeah. come back for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Christina, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the Pre-Raphaelite podcast. If you'd like some more information, please check the description below. Um, you can find us online at www.preraphaelitesociety.org and you can consider subscribing to our journal. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.